All right, well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City Church. Just want to say welcome. Glad to have you here. If you are new or visiting, special welcome. If there are ways that we can help you connect or get or serve you, maybe we just love to do that. So find someone, find me. You're welcome to find me. A lot of times people are afraid to talk to me after after this. They're like, oh, you must be like extra important. I'm not that important, right? Uh, So I'd love to talk to you. If you are new, come say hi. Um, Also, I just really want to echo what Becky mentioned about Vision Night. Man, especially if you are new, it can feel like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be at that. Like, that seems like for the people who are super committed or whatever. And that is just like one of the best ways that you could learn about what our church is really about and what it looks like to be connected and if that's something that would fit with you and your family. And so I just really want to invite you. Also, I'm pretty sure I've never eaten anything that Becky has made and thought, hmm, that was okay. It's always amazing. Like every single time, it's amazing. So just like if nothing else, just come for whatever chicken thing she said she was doing, right? All right, well, this fall, uh, we have been studying the book of Genesis, and we've been focusing on the first, uh, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. One year we'll get through all of it, but not this year. So uh, we've been focusing on the first, uh, the first chunk of the book of Genesis, and what we've, what we've seen so far is that Genesis is so foundational to our faith, not because the point of it is to show us the scientific how of creation, but because the point of Genesis is to show us the who of creation. It shows us who God is and what he is like, and it reveals reveals to us his nature and his character. And so Genesis tells us about what God is, who God is and what he's like, but that's not the only thing that we see in Genesis. We also see who we are, especially in Genesis 1 and 2. We, we found out in verses 26 and 28 of Genesis 1 that humanity is made in the image of God, which means that we both have our identity and our purposes as God's image-bearing representatives. In Genesis 1, we saw how God, the Bible makes a really big deal about humanity being God's image-bearers. And so we spent a number of weeks talking about that. But what we've seen from chapter 3 onwards is that humanity, we didn't, we didn't just enjoy and embrace and live in light of our identity as God's image-bearers. Instead, we rejected that. And so we saw that we uh, chose, instead of living as God's image bearers, instead we chose to enthrone ourselves as God. Instead of God deciding what is true and right and good, we want to be the ones that decide what is true and right and good. We want to be king. We want to be God. And this is what's at the root of the first sin in the garden and, and of all sin ever since then. You see, all sin at its root is mutinous rebellion. We say, God, we we no longer trust you to be the one that has our best interests in mind. We enthrone ourselves as the arbiter of what is true and right and good. And we'll be the ones who decide. You see, and that's why the consequences of sin are so severe. That's why the consequences of sin are death, because it's not just a bad decision or a mistake. You see, sin is rebellion. You see, Sin was spreading wider and wider and wider. We saw in Genesis 5 and Genesis uh, 4 and 5. And it was destroying God's good world. And last week, you know, we saw in Genesis chapter 6 that God was done letting sin run rampant in his world. God was done allowing it just to just run its course and, and cause problems and corrupt everything. We see God promising to do something about sin, not just eventually, but imminently. We saw God promising to wipe out humanity and to start over. And this week, as we study Genesis chapters 6 and 7 and 8, in the account of Noah and the flood, what we see is that God is keeping his promises. I'm just going to switch over to this one, Jeff. You see, we see God keeping his promises. You see, God is 
Genesis is not about Noah. It's not about the flood. Genesis is not about uh, giving us some kind of character that we just need to model and imitate our lives after. What Genesis is about is showing, is God showing and reminding the Israelites who are wandering around in the desert and you and I who are wandering around in this life that God is faithful to keep his promises. And the truth is that we really need a God who is faithful to keep his promises. We really need a God who is faithful to keep his promises, both to judge sin, but also one day to save sinners by defeating sin altogether. So with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll dive into our study this morning. Jesus, we come before you. God, we just say we really need you. We need you to shine the light of the truth of your word into our hearts so that we can see what is true and right and good. God, we need you to help us to see you in the midst of it. God, we need you to to be the one that empowers, God, for me to teach rightly from your word, but for us to be able to hear and respond to it, God, we just say, like, we don't have what we need to, to we don't have what we need without you. And so, God, we just want to come humbly before you this morning. God, say, meet us in our need for you. Meet us in our need for you through your word. And God, fill me with your spirit so that what I have to say is from you and not from me. God, empower us to listen and to hear and respond, to put ourselves under the authority of your word. God, for our good, but for your glory. And so we just come, God, with dependent hearts uh, to your word this morning, saying, just looking forward to you meeting us in our need for you. In your good name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we are uh, basically going to read three chapters of Genesis this morning, so buckle up, right? And I just want to say this. The reason why, it, it might feel like, wow, that's a lot. And the reason why we're doing that is, one, because we want to read the whole story, but more than that, it is a lot more important for us to hear what God says than it is for you to hear what I say. And so as a church, we want to be characterized by a church who, who puts ourselves under the authority of God's word. And so one of the ways that we do that, we just, we read it. And we let the reading of God's word be the thing that informs our study and our time together. So, uh, why don't you follow along with me? We're in Genesis. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through the end of chapter 8. It begins this way. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And so make... Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. And make a roof for it, leaving, the, leaving below the roof an opening with one cubit high all around. And put a door in the side of the ark and make lower and middle and upper decks. And I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all the life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come with you to be kept alive you are not to take every kind of food, and you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and to store it up away uh, as food for you and for them. And so Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Then Noah, and then the Lord said to Noah, "Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, and male and its mate, and one pair of every kind and of every kind of unclean animal, and male and its mate." 
and also seven pairs of every kind of bird and male and female to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. And so seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I have made. And Noah did all that Lord, the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of other creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah. And they entered the ark and got, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life and on the seventh, 17th day of the seventh month, on that day all of the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And on that day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and their wives of the three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kind, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and everything with wings, pairs of all the creatures that have, have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. And the animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood the flood kept coming on the earth, and the waters increased, and they lifted the ark high above the earth, and the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water, and they rose greatly on the earth, and all the mountains under the entire heavens were covered, and the waters rose and they covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits, and every living thing that moved on the land perished, birds and livestock and wild animals and all the creatures that swam over the earth and all, the, all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. And every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth and only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the living livestock that were with him in the ark and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky and the waters receded steadily from the earth and at the end of 150 days the water had gone down. And on the seventh day of the seventh month the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat and the waters continued to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month the tops of the mountains became visible and, 40, and uh, after 40 days Noah opened a window and he saw uh, and he, we had made in the ark and sent a raven out and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. And then he sat on a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. And the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. And so it returned to Noah in the ark. And he reached out his hand and he took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. And he waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. And when, he, when the dove returned to him in the evening, there was in his beak a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the, that the water had receded from the earth, and he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the, dry, the ground was dry. And by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wives and your son and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, birds and animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. And so Noah came out together with his sons and his wives and his sons' wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all of the birds, everything that moves on the land came out of the ark, one kind after the other. 
And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. For even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. For as long as the earth endures and seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. The word of the Lord. What a story, huh? That's quite a story. And the story of Noah's Ark, it brings up a lot of questions for us. Sometimes the questions that we have are ethical ones. Like, how could a God that is good just wipe out everyone and everything? How is, how is that possible? Sometimes our questions are more historical. Like, aren't there just a bunch of ancient flood stories? What makes this one any more believable than any of the other ones? Or when it says that the, the whole world was flooded, does that literally mean the whole world? Or was that just the known world? Or what were the specifics about that? Or, hey, have they found the ark? I remember seeing one guy on the History Channel that looked like he kind of had crazy eyes, saying that he had found the ark. And it was for sure that it was found. And that, so have they found the ark? Or, sometimes our questions are more logistic. Like, how could you fit that many animals on the ark? Or even if you could fit that many, how do you get them on? I mean, like, did Noah have some kind of special whistle? Or was there, like, some special call that he had? Or, like, what, what happened? And I'll just answer, quickly answer uh, two of those questions. I, one, based on the ark's dimensions, it seems like it could hold a lot of animals. Somewhere between twenty and 40,000 animals, it seems, could fit on the ark. And how they got them on the ark, I feel like that would just firmly be in the miracle camp. But if we trust that God can create the world out of nothing, I think we can like, allow him to get some animals on a boat. I think we can give him a pass on that, right? Well, that just brings up a lot more questions, like how much food would you need to feed 35,000 animals for like basically a year? And how much poop would that be? And whose job was it to deal with all of that poop? More importantly, how did cats make it? Like, cats are the essence of sin, right? They're just like the most selfish, evil, like, self-installed kings in the whole history of the planet, right, of animals, right? So how did they make it onto the ark, right? We're not going to answer all those questions this morning because we don't have time, right? <laughs> and cats, just, there's no way to deal with them, right? Anyways. And all these are, are really good questions. They're not wrong questions. They're not, they're not bad questions. They're just questions we, we don't really have time to focus on this morning. But the focus of our passage this morning isn't, isn't on that stuff, but you need to hear this as well. The focus of our passage this morning isn't Noah either. He's not the point of the passage. See, a lot of times people look at the story of Noah and oftentimes other Old Testament stories, and we're just looking for a moral. We're looking for a lesson to learn. But that's not how the Bible works. You see, the Bible is not just a book of morals. It's not just like a spiritual Aesop's fables. We don't look at the... We don't, we're not trying to look at the story of Noah and see him as this righteous example in the midst of a corrupt generation, which he is, and, and that the point of the story is that we need to just trust God and obey him even when it doesn't make sense. I just want to say this is true. It is true that Noah was a righteous man in the midst of a corrupt generation, and it is true that we need to trust God and obey him even when it doesn't make sense. But that is not the point of the story of Noah. That's not the thing that is, that, that is going on. You see, the point of Noah's Ark is not to teach us a moral or a lesson of how to live. No, the point of Noah's Ark is to tell us something really incredibly important about God. You see, the Bible is God's self-revelation about himself, and the point of the Bible is, is God. It's a revelation of who he is, and that, that really does change our lives. But we need to see him as the point 
And so what I want you to see this morning is, is that we study is that the point of Noah's Ark is, is to show us that God, the God of the Bible, is a God who is always faithful to keep his promises. That God is always faithful to keep his promises. And as we study, I want to show you two things that kind of clue us into that being the, the central theme of our passage this morning. I want to show you the two promises that God is keeping in the flood. And I want to show you why it's good news that God keeps his promises and why it's good news that he keeps these two promises. So let's dive in. Two, two things, I think, that clue us into God being the point of the story and, and not us and not, not Noah. And one, I think, is we find outside of the text and one inside. Context is so important when we, when we read the Bible, understanding who it was written to and, and what was happening. And what we saw the very first week in Genesis is that Genesis is written to the Israelites as they're wandering around in the desert. They had just been set free from captivity in Egypt, and so they're wandering in the desert. And this is the, the point of Genesis is reminding them about who God is and his character and his nature, so why they can trust him, why they can hope in him, and, and who God really is. And the first clue to why we know that the point of the story is about God and not about Noah or not about us is because of the similarities and the differences between the flood account that we see here in the Bible and all these ancient Near Eastern flood accounts. Almost every culture has a story about this. Many of the ancient peoples around the world, they tell a story about a great flood with which only one man and his family escaped by building a boat. And the similarities between the biblical flood and the Babylonian accounts of the flood show that this was a well-known story in the ancient Near East. But what is important to note about these two accounts is not the similarities between them. It is the differences. You see, there are a lot of differences. Some of these are in details about how long it was and when it was and all of the details. But what is much more important are the theological differences that we see between these two accounts. As one commentator writes, these are so considerable that it seems likely that the author of the biblical account was deliberately trying to correct or refute the common ancient Near Eastern view of the flood. In particular, Genesis is trying to explain what God is really like and how he really relates to the world. The, the word for this is called a, a polemic, right? And that God's word is writing not just to teach something that is true, but is to correct something that is false, right? You see, we don't have time to get into all the details about all the differences, but I just want to point out a few things between the flood story that we see here in God's word and the flood stories of the ancient Near Eastern world. In the ancient Near Eastern world, almost universally, there are many gods, and they agree on a flood to stop the problem of human population. And when the flood is unleashed, these gods kind of like accidentally hit the flood button, right? And they are just like wildly afraid. They can't control it. They cower before this flood like it is this powerful thing that, th that they just kind of set loose on accident. And in the end, one of the top gods is surprised to find a man who had survived the flood. You see, the Bible is telling a wildly different story. A wildly different story. You see, in the Bible there is one god, not many and the problem is not population growth. The, the problem is the corruption of humanity in the world by sin. And unlike the Babylonian gods, the God of the Bible is all-powerful. He is always in, in total control of the flood and knows just what is happening. He not only brings the flood, but the passage says that he removes it. There is no hint of uncertainty. There is no hint of God being out of control. There is absolute power exercised in the Bible in the God of the Bible, in the flood. And unlike the Babylonian gods, the God of the Bible is all-knowing. He is not surprised that Noah survives the flood because God is the one who saved him from it in the first place. 
This brings us to the second thing that clues us into the reality of, of God being the focus of our story, and that's the literary structure of our passage. I don't often get into the details of this because I think sometimes it can create a culture in a church where like, you have to have some special hidden knowledge or something like that to understand what things are really about, and that's just not the case. But I think in our passage this morning, there's just something really helpful to highlight. You see, in Hebrew literature, especially in Hebrew narrative literature, how a story is structured, it matters. It's really important, right? See, in the Western world, we, we kind of trace the story from, from, from beginning to rising action to climax to fall to resolution, right? And, and the most important, important part of the story is always this climax, right? And that almost always happens kind of near the end of the story. Right? And so we're, we're looking, the, the most important part is when that stuff happens and what happens to resolve it, right? But that's not really the case in Hebrew literature. And see, in Hebrew literature, you're not really looking for the end. What you're doing is you're looking at the middle. Because oftentimes in Hebrew narrative literature, there's this pattern in which the story is written. It's kind of an A, B, C, B, A pattern, right? It's kind of written in a mirror. And the point of the story is that C part. It's the thing in the middle. That's what the author is really trying to highlight with the story. And it's called a chiastic structure or a chiasm. And that's the case here in the account of Noah. What you see, we don't have time to trace the whole thing, but you see this mirror pattern, right? You can trace it in the waters rising and the flood coming and all this kind of stuff. And it's a mirror pattern, right? And if you want to know more about it, I'll, sh- I'll show you sometime. <laughs> But the thing at the center of the story of Noah, the thing at the center of the structure of the whole story is chapter 8, verse 1. And we find at the middle, at the height of the chaos, the point of the whole story is this, chapter 8, verse 1, says, but God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. That's at the center of the whole structure of the story. You see, God does not forget Noah on the waters. He does not let the flood continue forever. You see, God remembers Noah and he intervenes. What the passage is saying is, God is faithfully keeping his promises. God is faithfully keeping his promises. And he's doing that by saving Noah and through him his promise to one day defeat sin altogether. You see, the author of Genesis is proclaiming a God that is not far off or distant or concerned about the world, but ultimately impotent to do anything about it, but rather a God who is absolutely powerful and who is absolutely faithful. You see, I have very limited ability to keep my promises. Right? I can tell my wife that I would promise to drive safely, but I cannot promise her that I will. But I cannot promise her that I will come home safely. Right? Because I don't have control over everything. I don't have the ability to ensure all of my promises are kept. My promise keeping is very limited. But that is not the case with God, because God's authority is such that there is nothing that can keep Him from keeping His promises. God is not well intentioned, but ultimately too weak. No, he is in absolute, total control. And what we see in the passage is that in his sovereign control, in his absolute authority, God is choosing to act and to keep his promises. You see, God has the power and the authority to keep his promises, and that's what we see him doing. In Genesis 5, we saw a genealogy. This genealogy, it traced Noah all the way back to Adam. And what we saw is that that's really important Because all the way back in Genesis chapter 3.15, right after the fall, what God does is God makes a promise. God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. And he says, one day there will come one of your offspring who will come and defeat the Satan, who will come and crush the serpent, who will come and defeat Satan and sin and death altogether. 
one of your offspring. This will come from you. And so in remembering Noah and in saving Noah and in God, in God establishing his covenant with Noah, God is remembering his promise. God is keeping his promise to one day defeat sin. But that's not the only promise God is keeping in the story of Noah. You see, God is keeping his promise as well to judge sin. You see, Noah needed saving. Well, he needed saving because God is faithful to judge sin, and like all of us, Noah was a sinner. When we look at the story, Noah appears to be like a really good guy, right? He is heralded. There are lots of good things, and I'm not trying to take away from that. But just in a few weeks, what we'll see is that Noah is not like this ultimate picture of purity. In fact, as soon as the ark, just, just after the ark lands, we see Noah worshiping, and a few days later, we see him in a drunken stupor cursing his children. You see, sin survives the flood because Noah was a sinner. He was not perfect. You see, Noah needed saving from God's just judgment of sin, just like you and I do. You see, we like the idea of a God that keeps his promises to defeat sin. We like the idea of a God that keeps his promises to save Noah, but we really bristle against the idea of a God who keeps his promises to judge sin. And the reason why we bristle against that is because you and I are under God's just judgment of sin. We are sinners who are under God's righteous, just judgment of us. As one pastor noted, we are all selective hypocrites. If someone's heart was inclination, was only evil all the time towards you, and they would not stop doing evil, you would want justice done. But if you were the one who was committing that evil, you would want mercy, wouldn't you? You see, we want justice for others, but we want mercy for ourselves. You see, we want to embrace a God of love and forgiveness, but we shy away from or we try to just flat out reject a God who judges sin. But the truth is that the two are inseparable because the God who does nothing about sin is neither good nor just. A God who does nothing about sin is neither good nor just. You see, the real question we need to be asking is not how could a, how could a God who is good not judge sin. We need to be asking the question is how could a God who is good not do it? How could a God who is good let sin run rampant forever? You see, we need to remember that sin is not a mistake, that sin is not just a bad decision, sin is not just an error. As we saw in Genesis 3, sin is mutinous rebellion. What we have all said is, God, we reject your kingly rule and authority. We enthrone ourselves. We will be the ones who decide what is good and right and true. We will be the ones who make the rules. We will be the ones who is God. And it's a coup that we all stage. We dethrone God. We enthrone ourselves. And our rebellion is not good for us, and it is not good for this world. Our kingly rule ends in violence and wickedness, and that is what always happens. Genesis chapter 6, 11, 12 says this. That the, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how, the corrupt, how corrupt the earth had become and how all of the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. This is a repetition and an escalation of what we saw last week in chapter 6, verse 5, where God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the hearts, of the thoughts of the hearts of human was only evil all the time. This is what theologians refer to as total depravity. One pastor writes it this way, everything about us and in us is corrupted by sin. Our mind is corrupted, our heart is corrupted, our emotions are corrupted, our intentions are corrupted, our hands are corrupted, our mouth is corrupted. We are made in God's image and his likeness. We are made for greatness, but now we are sinners to do great evil instead. You see, total depravity looks like a rejection of God, and it is a complete embrace of sin. And this is the default state of every human heart. You see, our, in our depravity, 
what happens is we are violent towards one another. And sometimes this is a physical violence. Maybe you have experienced this personally or you know others who have. But oftentimes this is an emotional violence. We are angry and we are filled with bitterness and jealousy and envy. And we harm others with our words or with our actions or with our inactions or our absence. We must, we must see that God will not stand by forever while his good world and those who bear his image destroy it and destroy one another. No, we need to see that God is just and that he will judge sin. And this is actually really good news for us. You might be thinking, uh, hold on a second. I think you just said God's judgment of sin was good news. I did. That's what I did say. Yeah, you were right. You were listening. You were paying attention. I emphatically say that God's judgment of sin is good news, right? You see, you and I, we look at our justice system, and what we see all over is not justice, right? What we see all over is injustice. Our world is full of injustice. Those who are guilty go free, and the innocent are often imprisoned. Those with wealth oppress those who are poor. Those with power use it to abuse those without it, not to lift them up and serve them. You see, but God's proven faithfulness is good news because it means that sin will not go unpunished. You might not get justice in this life, but you can be absolutely sure that God will justly judge all things in the end. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue justice here, right? It doesn't mean that we don't pursue that. We just let God take care of everything in the end. But it, it means that we can trust that God will justly judge sin in the end. And that frees us up to love and forgive and to serve instead of needing to get vengeance. Because what we can do is we can trust God to be faithful, to be just. But God's just judgment of sin is only good news if, like Noah, we are protected from God's just judgment of our own sin. It's only good news if we are protected. <laughs> you see, you and I are sinners by nature and by choice. We are mutinous rebels against God. And therefore, we are justly under God's condemnation. And we are deserving of his wrath, Romans chapter 1 tells us. And the good news of the gospel is not that God simply wipes our slate cleans or overlooks our offenses because then God would not be good and he would not be just. No, instead, the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God absorbs his own wrath for our sin. A fancy theological word for this is the word propitiation. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25 says it this way. We are justified, which means we are made right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, like Noah's ark, Jesus shields us from the storm of God's wrath, and it lifts us up above the waters of God's judgment. You see, we are lifted up above the waters of God's judgment because Jesus has been submerged into them. You see, Jesus is a much better ark. Jesus is a much better ark. You see, the question for us this morning is, have you entered the ark of Christ for safety? You see, Jesus is the only hope of protection that we have against the storm of God's just judgment that is due our sin. And you need to know that that is coming. You see, the dates in this passage, they tell us that Noah spent a hundred years building the ark. And for a hundred years, he was the laughingstock of the world, I am sure. But the flood came. And the only reason that Noah and his family were saved was because they put their trust in a God who faithfully keeps his promises. He said, God, you have said that you are coming 
with a flood of judgment. And so we will listen and we will obey. We will choose to believe you, who you say you are and what you say we will do. And we will obey. You see, Noah believed God. Noah's faith was in God, that God would be faithful to keep his promise, both to judge sin and to save sinners like Noah. You see, there is only one door to the ark. There is only one way to be safe from God's just judgment of sin. And one day, just as God did in Noah's generation, God will close the door and there will be no more chances to board the ark. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says it this way, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Son, understand slowness. Instead, it says, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, the reason God takes so long to return is because God wants to, for all of us to have a chance to repent. You see, God is coming back, and it may be slow to you and I, but God's slowness is, a, is his grace made known to us so that we might have a chance to repent. So the question is then, how do we enter the ark, Right? How do, we, how do we receive the safety that we need? I think the first thing that's important to understand is that we need to acknowledge, like Noah did, that we need saving. You see, by agreeing with God that we are sinners who have rebelled against God and who are under his just judgment. And this is not just a heady thing that we must have. Rather, it is a, there needs to be a weightiness to the understanding that the gravity of our sin and the gravity of our rebellion against God. The Bible talks about this as godly sorrow. There is a weightiness to the understanding of our rebellion. You see, God is faithful to keep his promise to judge sin, and so we must take our sin seriously but the way you enter the ark is not just by admitting you need saving you have to get on the ark you have to get on the boat and scripture tells us the way that we do that is by faith we put our faith in the one who can save you see Noah did not have a backup plan it was not the ark plus another side boat that he was building on the side, just in case that one doesn't work. It wasn't the ark plus some floaty wings that he was working on and trying to get a patent for. It was just the ark. Noah's faith was totally in that. And see, and likewise for us, saving faith is a faith that, en- is a faith, a faith that enters the ark is a faith that relies on Jesus alone. You see, it's not our own effort or our own performance or our own ability to earn or maintain our status or our standing with God that can save us. You need to see this. You need to see this. A lot of times we try to identify ourselves with Noah in the story, right? We find the hero of the story and we say, all right, we need to be like him or we need to not be like him or whatever it is. We try to find that in the story. You need to hear this. You and I, we are not the righteous ones in the story. If If we're meant to align ourselves with anyone, In the story, it is not Noah. We are a whole lot more like the wicked and corrupt generation that Noah is separate from. No, if there's anyone in the story we're to align ourselves with, it is the family of Noah. You see, by God's grace, we are offered salvation, not by merit, but by relationship that comes through faith. You see, by faith in Christ, we get adopted into God's family. And just like Noah's family was saved through their relationship to him, the righteous one, See, you too and I are saved, not by merit, but by relationship with the one who is righteous on our behalf. And through him, we are adopted into his family. You see, we could not ever earn God's favor, and even if we could, we would be absolutely sure to mess it up. 
But the good news of the gospel is that by faith we enter the ark, not by merit. And this kind of faith, it actually changes our lives because it's not just enough to put our faith in the one who is who saves us. That faith is revealed, it is proven in our lives, which actually look different. You see, Noah's faith changed what he did. Noah obeyed God and did what God said because Noah believed God. His faith was in him. You see, if your faith hasn't changed your life, your faith has not saved you. You see, a saving faith is always a changing faith. Noah's faith changed his life. It changed what he did and who he was. And likewise, we must submit to God. You see, our, our faith must change who we are and, and how we live. Otherwise, what it reveals is that we don't actually have a faith. You see, the faith that God is looking for is one that not just that believes we need saving, one that not just believes that Jesus is the only one who saves, but one that submits to him as the Savior and as the King. You see, our sin is our rebellion, and, and in order to be saved, we must lay down our rebellious arms. We must submit ourselves to the King who is good and the one who offers us freedom. You see, and when we do that like, we, like Noah did, God invites us into his purposes, into his mission. Pastor J.D. Greer, he preached a really helpful sermon on this as pastors this week. I was just so helped by it and super helpful for me. And he closed the sermon just by saying this. You see, our mission is now like Noah's. We have to tell people that there is another storm of God's wrath coming and that whoever will may enter into the ark. They may think that we are crazy. They probably will. But we have to put our faith in the God who faithfully keeps his promises. You see, the question this morning as we study God's, the, the account of Noah and the ark is not, are you righteous? Have you, have you been like Noah? Are you separate than this generation? That's not the question. The question is like, Noah, did you get, have you gotten on the ark? Are you safe from God's just judgment of your sin? And are you pointing people to him as the one who offers safety to them as well? You see, in Acts chapter 2, it tells us that Peter, he pleads with the crowds. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. You see, some of you have never gotten on the ark. Some of you have looked for a distance. You have admired God's ark of safety, but you have never gotten on. You have never put your faith in the one who saves you. You've been looking to your own effort or your own merit to be the thing that saves you, or you've been just waiting for the right time to do it, and you just need to hear this. There is only one way to escape God's just judgment of our sin. And it's to get on the ark of Christ. You see, God is calling you to step inside and to be saved with you. I just need you to hear this. There are some of you this morning who have not stepped on the ark. And I am here to plead with you as Peter pleaded with the crowds in Acts chapter 2. Oh, that you would choose to get on the ark and be saved. See, this is not fire and brimstone preaching. No, it's a plea. That what you would see is that you and I, that all of us, we are under God's just judgment of our sin. We are all mutinous rebels. And there is one way that God offers for us to be saved. And it's not just that we would believe that God is faithful to keep his promise to judge sin but that we, it's a plea that we would put our faith in the God who also keeps his promises, as Peter goes on to say in Acts chapter 2, that when we come to Jesus in faith and repentance, 
he forgives. Peter says, this promise is for you and for your children, he says, and for all those who are far off. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, in communion, that's what we remember and that's what we are celebrating. That God made a way out of his just judgment. That in Christ, God keeps his promises to defeat sin and that by faith in him, we can actually be forgiven and accepted by God. You see, Jesus came so that in wiping out sin, God would not also have to wipe out all sinners. No, because in Jesus, God gets both justice and mercy. See, the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body and blood, which were broken and shed for us as God justly judged sin. But they also remind us that through his blood we have mercy. That there is an ark of safety in him. You see, what we are doing as we take communion is we are proclaiming the gospel. We are reminding ourselves about who God is and who we are because of all that he has done. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. The Bible is radically clear. The one thing that does that is putting your faith in Jesus. You see, you're either, you're either on the ark and protected from God's just judgment or you're not. And the offer this morning is come. Get on the boat. God's, God's offer is for all those who are far off to come. And so if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, if you have gotten on the ark of his safety from, the, from his just judgment of sin, then there are two tables in the back of the room, and go take communion. You go and you dip the bread in the juice, and that's how you do during our time of worship. You won't be dismissed. You'll, you just go as you feel led. I would just encourage you, as you do, talk with God. If this morning was a reminder for you of God's gracious gift that you are on his ark of safety, then as we worship, thank God for that. Rejoice. Tell him how grateful you are for all that he has done and for who he is and, and that he has saved you. And if today you choose to get on the ark of God's safety, then tell me so I can rejoice with you about it. But for all of us, what we need to do is we need to ask God to empower us to, to proclaim and to live in light of his faithfulness to keep his promises, both to judge sin and one day to defeat it altogether through the person and the work of Jesus. That we might put our hope in him, that we might trust the God who is always faithful to keep his promises and live in light of that for our good, but most of all, for God's glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for your word. We are so grateful, God, not just that it tells us that you judge sin, but that you are faithful to do it. And not just that you are faithful to judge sin, but God, you are faithful to make a way out of it for us. God, and so we come this morning recognizing that without Jesus, we are under the just judgment of your sin because we are all mutinous rebels. God, what we need is your ark of safety. What we need is for Jesus to be submerged into the waters of your judgment and, and so that he might lift us up out of them. God, what we need is you. And so, God, if we put our hope in you to do that, God, we come with thankful hearts this morning to God to celebrate who you are and all that you've done and, and the great grace that you have shown us in Jesus. God, and I pray that there would be those this morning who would choose to get on the boat. God, who would receive by faith your offer of salvation. God, who would acknowledge their need for saving. 
God, I want to put their allegiance under you as their king and their authority. God, and I pray that in all things we would be a people who puts our trust in you, the faithful one, to keep your promises, and that we would live in light of that. God, for our good, but most of all, for your great glory. We pray these things. Amen.